0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Don Marsh. Today we discuss changes in the practice of religion. More and more people are leaving their places of worship and turning away from their religious identity, especially Christians. The question is why, and what kind of a moral and ethical void is that leaving, or is it leaving a void at all? Joining me in studio is James Croft, the Outreach Director for the Non-Theistic Ethical Society of St. Louis. Lee Schmidt is the Mallinckrodt Distinguished Professor in the Humanities at the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University. And he's the author of Village Atheists, How America's Unbelievers Made Their Way in a Godly Nation. Gentlemen, great to have you with us.
1: Good afternoon. It's a pleasure, Don.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Lee, I'll start with you. Why are people leaving the church?
2: There are are a lot of reasons. It's certainly clear that there has been a significant growth in the number of people claiming no religious affiliation. In 1990, it was about 9%. And now in social surveys, that's up to 25% or more. Uh, I think there are, are a lot of reasons. I mean, if, if you look at it in terms of this uh, fifty-year period, um, r- rates of religious affiliation were very, very high during the Cold War, when when it was a big part of American identity to claim some sort of religious identity. You needed to claim a religious identity in, in, in a way to be an American, to be a full full citizen. And with the end of the Cold War. Um, the ways in which citizenship and religious profession were interwoven came were loosened up a little bit. I think, I think that has made a big difference. Um, the millennials are largely raised um, after the Cold War and were raised with that sense that, that um, a religious identity was so integral to being an American citizen. And it's in that, it's among the millennials where the um, religious disaffiliation rates are the highest. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, there's certainly other factors as well. The rise of the religious right in the 1970s and 1980s had a big impact. Mm-hmm. I think this the ways, the hyper visual, um, hyper present uh, voices out there on the right, from Jerry Falwell to Jerry Falwell Jr., had a had a real impact among the millennials too, in, in, in creating this association between um, right wing politics and religion. So I, and that, that certainly alienated a good number of people. So that would be a big factor. Mm-hmm.
0: James, does that pretty much match your
1: thinking? Absolutely. As the outreach director of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, which is a humanist congregation, I get to see the sort of micro-level version of what Lee's been talking about on the macro level. I get to talk to individual people, many of whom have moved away from the religious faith of their childhood, and I get to hear their stories, and I hear similar things again and again. Many people have drifted away from their religious backgrounds because they want to maintain their intellectual and moral integrity. They feel like they can't any longer believe the things that they were taught to believe in church. Perhaps they asked questions or expressed doubts, and those doubts weren't responded to in a welcoming or a satisfying way, and that pushed them away a bit. Often, particularly younger people, are very uncomfortable with some of the teachings of their traditional religious faith, teachings about the role of LGBTQ people in society, women's potential to be leaders in a spiritual community. And that pushes them away as well. But I want to stress something important, which is I think that there are lots of positive reasons as well why people decide that they don't want to be part of a traditional religion anymore. Many of our members are looking for positive messages about how we can live life ethically and how we can make sense of our experience and build community, they don't always find traditional religious communities speaking to those needs anymore. And so they go to places which do. And that drives some of them to the ethical society and some of them out of congregational life altogether. What are they missing by not having this uh, religious experience? Well, I would say, as a clergy person for a congregation, that religious communities are very important, regardless of your beliefs about God or the supernatural. And I think that there's sociological research that supports that idea. Professor Schmidt can tell us more about that, perhaps. But I think that people who are members of a congregation are often happier and more fulfilled in their lives. They're able to develop deeper relationships with other people. They're able to make sense of suffering and get the support they need when something goes wrong. And they also tend to be more civically active, more Uh, willing to volunteer in their community to play a role in political campaigns to give money to charities. There seems to be a lot of benefits to being a member of a congregation. And that's why I'm happy that somewhere like the Ethical Society exists in St. Louis, because that means that you can be a member of a congregation, even if you don't have traditional religious beliefs.
0: Lee, do you want to comment on that part of it?
2: I I agree with James that there are clearly a lot of um, positive social benefits to being part of a, of a close-knit community like that. I think one of the uphill struggles um, for leaders in, in these religious communities, whether the Ethical Society or other religious communities, is that so many of the people who express uh, that they have no religious affiliation, that they don't have any religious identity, are not really seeking one um, and they aren't really looking for a religious home. In, uh, in these social surveys, when you ask someone who when they claim to be nothing in particular religiously. Whether they're seeking or looking for a religious home, it's 80 or 90 percent say they're not. Um, that is, they might be interested in trying something out for a while, but they're not really looking for a fixed place. At least that's not what the, the social surveys are showing. So it makes it – I think it makes community building um, hard because you're looking at a demographic now that's not really – uh, doesn't really share James's estimate of all of these benefits of being in a community. So, so that 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 adds to the 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 struggle or the difficulties or the challenges I think um, for uh, people who are trying to build up these communities among the disaffiliated.
0: You know, I'm sure there are people listening now who are religious and <laughs> deeply religious, perhaps who are saying, with this with this change, with this withdrawal from the church, uh, this ethical and moral void has to take place, that there's something is really going to be absent from these people. Do you buy into that?
2: Well, I mean, it's certainly um, a widespread uh, concern. I mean, I think that people jump to that conclusion too quickly. Um, There's so much um, cultural criticism aimed at the nuns, uh, those who aren't Affiliated or those who identify themselves as spiritual That's but non-religious, N O N E S. Yeah, right. Uh, those who, when asked if they're religious, uh, if they have a religious identity, they say they don't have one. Um, so there's a lot of cultural criticism aimed um, at these, uh, at this, at this group, um, both from the right and the left, um, really. And uh, so I think it. It behooves us to, to, to listen to them like James does when he meets people to really listen to the complexity of their stories and all of the different things that go in into this. And that being a nun does, tells us very little about these people when you use that label, right? And the, and the stories that they have are far more complicated. Um, and there's, there's just far more content. That's just such a negative um, category. It just doesn't tell us much at all. So I would start with that, that process of listening or serious study and, and not with the assumption that somehow um, there is this terrible void and vacuum and that the effects on American society are necessarily going to be so baneful. James, what do you tell these people when they say that to you? It's one of the most common misconceptions that I
1: face, that people who are not traditionally religious, people who are members of the Ethical Society, don't have any positive values of our own, that there's a big gap in our lives that would otherwise be filled by participation in a religious community, and we just haven't replaced it with anything. In fact, I remember vividly shortly after I moved to St. Louis to work with the Ethical Society, telling someone at a party that I was training to be clergy there, and they said, oh yes, the ethical society, that's that place for lapsed Unitarians and Atheist (laughs) Jews. And I think the implication was that that's the place where people go if they don't believe in anything. And that's not the case. We have profound commitments to our moral and spiritual values ethical societies were founded precisely because our founder believed that there needed to be a space to explore the biggest questions that all human beings face as we go through life, why are we here how can we find meaning and purpose how should we treat each other, how should we raise our children, what sort of society do we want to live in but that we needed a place where everybody could come regardless of their beliefs about God or the supernatural natural, that wasn't sectarian in that way. And so we exist precisely to engage people in discussions like what is the good life? How can you respond to evil and injustice in the world? And the Ethical Society of St. Louis, we've been in the city for about 133 years. Our first home was actually just across the road from where we're having this conversation at the Sheldon Concert Hall, which our community built. And For that whole time, we've been deeply engaged in things like civil rights work. Some of our members who are still members of the society today helped desegregate lunch counters in St. Louis during the first civil rights movement. And that work is integral to who we are as a community because we're founded on the idea that every person is equal in dignity and worth, that it's our responsibility to each other to create a society that reflects that. And... So we do have moral values just like any congregation we come together around beliefs about how we should live and there isn't I don't think our members experience a, a void perhaps they feel like there's too much to do and to talk about rather than that there's nothing. I believe
0: the Pew research people have done uh, quite a bit of polling on, on all of this. And one of the things that I find interesting is that the the greatest number of people withdrawing from the church are Christians, but Muslims and Jews are actually gaining uh, gaining s- strength, if you will. Why is that? Do you think?
2: Right. So so this group of people who express no religious affiliation, the largest um, group within that are ex-Protestants. So so and then followed by by ex-Catholics. So it is true that. Um, the, uh, the religiously disaffiliated are made up, made up of a lot of former Christians. Um, so why would that be? Um, I mean, just in terms of there – are, there are, if you look at the data though, there are, there are exceptions within this. For example, uh, Southern Baptists, some of the smaller Protestant groups don't lose members at, at the same rate. They don't have the same um, exit, rate of exiting, um, Southern Baptists. Adventists. Um, So there are Protestant groups that are definitely exceptions. Um, So I, I mean I, I do think that the uh, you know what are the reasons for this I mean there has been a massive erosion the reasons the Protestants seem to be leading the way in particular kinds of Protestants that are leading the way Presbyterians Episcopalians Congregationalists Methodists is is that that's the, the old line Protestant establishment and that those groups have been eroding in terms of their membership for quite a while now um, and it's been eroding on both sides. There's been some pull into evangelical Protestantism and then there's just a kind of a drift in more secular directions as well. So um, yeah, so the, those Protestants in particular have been um, – have seen their membership eroded by these demographic changes. That's, that, that is clearly evident. Um, James, I'll ask you to hold
0: that thought for a moment. I have to take a break. Let's do that now and come back. I know you want to respond to what Lee has just said. We'll uh, continue this conversation on the erosion of uh, church membership uh, in the United States and other parts of the world, too, I should certainly point out. That conversation continues in a moment. If you'd like to be a part of it, give us a call at 382 8255 That's 382 TALK. Send us an email to talk at STLpublicradio.org or send us a tweet at STL On Air. What has religion meant to you? Back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
3: Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach.
0: And now we come back to uh, our conversation with uh, Lee Schmidt and also with uh, James Croft. James, you wanted to get into the, uh, into the uh, conversation following
1: uh, Lee's comments. So you asked the question, Don, about why certain religious groups might be growing while others are declining. And one question that I frequently get in my work is, why is it that the Ethical Society of St. Louis is the biggest ethical society in the country? We are a part of a network of humanist congregations, part of the American Ethical Union, which sort of coordinates the efforts of the different ethical societies around the United States. And the St. Louis Society is by membership the biggest one. And people are often confused by that because most of our other societies are in larger cities. And something that I think is very powerful is the feeling of being part of a minority, And I think that this may be one reason why religious groups like Muslim groups or Jewish groups may be experiencing less of a decline or even growing is because when people feel a little bit unusual, when they feel like they're not part of the mainstream, they try to find other people like us. And I think that that's part of the reason why the St. Louis society is larger than the others, because this is a part of the country where religion is more prominent particularly in politics and culture, where it is more common to be asked, my members are sometimes asked this, oh, which church do you go to, which is less common back in Boston where I used to live. And so I think there's a slightly greater pressure on minority religious perspectives to come together to find solidarity and to define who they are. And I think that that's working in a way uh, to benefit the Ethical Society of St. Louis and maybe these other religious communities too. What is the size of your congregation? We have almost 400 pledging members. Mm -hmm. So that's people who have decided to commit to becoming a member and submitting a pledge form to say, yes, I actually want to formally join the society. On Sunday mornings when we meet at 11am, we'll get maybe 150 to 200 people regularly attending. And in terms of how many people are public programs impact, we have thousands and thousands of people coming through the door every year for the public lectures or the educational program. We have a Sunday ethical education for kids program that raises children to have strong moral values and to be good friends and to think for themselves and those sorts of questions. And so we are a community of about 400, but we reach
0: many, many times that number. Well, Lee, as congregations go, that seems like it's a pretty good size, is it?
2: It's, it? it's certainly a good size. And I, I will... Um, I will say, though, I mean, just um, to be interested to talk with, with the James about this because in that kind of larger world of religious denominations and movements, it's always been hard to grow humanism too much. I mean, this is, this is, this is as he says, a, a small minority uh, um, religious movement. And the question is, among these religious nons or the disaffiliated, I, you know, many of them still uh, express uh, religious curiosity or interests, um, and when they're expressing those interests, how many of them are, are thinking, you know, to become a humanist, and how many might be saying, you know, maybe I'll try yoga or mindfulness practices, or um, or go on this retreat uh, or what have you. So that there, there are lots of other options out there, and, and so in this big marketplace uh, of you know religious possibility. Uh, you know where where the humanists are in that um, is an interesting question. It's certainly one of the options, but there are just so many other options out there that the disaffiliated seem to take an interest in as well.
0: Uh, James, define humanism for me so that we all have the same
1: reference point. Absolutely. So humanism is a positive philosophy of life that asserts the equal dignity and worth of every person and our ability and responsibility to create a better world where that dignity is respected it's a philosophy based on reason not on the teachings of any particular prophet or any scripture, we come to our own conclusions about reality and we believe that through thinking together by mobilizing our collective intellect, we can better understand the world that we live in. Generally humanists reject the idea of a God or an afterlife but I must stress that the Ethical Society of St. Louis is not an atheist congregation. We're not a place where you have to not believe in God to be a member. We welcome everyone regardless of their religious beliefs as long as they affirm those central values of humanism, which is the dignity and worth of every person and our ability and responsibility to improve the world. Non-atheist, how about agnostic? Yes, we have many members who are agnostics, many members who are atheists, some members who believe in God, some members who attend our congregation on Sundays and different congregations on different weeks.
0: We have some callers. Let's get them into the conversation. I'll start with Brandt, who's calling from St. Louis. Brandt, thanks for waiting. You're on the air.
3: Hi, Don. I'm an evangelical, and I want to confess on behalf of the American Church about its shortcomings. About This is about the church at large. Uh, many of us have um, basically abandoned the community. I work with refugees now, and I used to work with inner-city kids. Um, the churches um, <clears throat> get their tax exemption <clears throat> and should put back into the uh, community and earn their keep. And I am kind of the odd man out sometimes. I think that there should be an assessment of each church. If you're not getting people off drugs, if you're not repairing marriages, if you're not dealing with latchkey kids, if you're not not serving the community, you really don't have a right to this claim of tax exempt status. I think that it needs to be a case-by-case basis. Grant, thank
0: you so much for the call. James, it seems like he's falling right in line with your thinking.
1: Absolutely. I entirely agree. It is the responsibility of all of us, whether we're a member of a congregation or not, but perhaps particularly those of us who are a member of a religious community that espouses certain values, to live by those values. And if our communities are not doing that, then we need to hold them to account. Lee, is it fair to say that churches, uh, to uh,
0: any degree you might uh, choose, not fulfilling their obligation in this way?
2: Well, I, I, I think Brent makes a a fascinating point for us to consider. I mean he identifies himself uh, as an evangelical and I think so much of the rhetoric um, uh, among the disaffiliated and among those who bind to some of the new atheist rhetoric. For example, is anti-evangelical just assumes that this is a homogenous group. Um, that doesn't share any of this social um, and political progressivism that they think um, is essential in the world. and This is a reminder of um, the diversity within the evangelical movement as well and um, to, to, to be careful not to kind of create this big lump uh, around the religious right and to look within um, the evangelical movement in this country for these kind of uh, – diverse voices and, uh, and, and that, that really is important because so much of the alienation, so much of the, the division I think is fed by this sense that we know, um, you know where the evangelicals are and all these issues we care about. And so often, there are, of course, other voices um, in that community, like Mm -hmm. Prince. Along these lines, we have an email from Jeff who writes,
0: To the question of morality, I cannot take credit for the phrase, but it's one of my favorites. If someone is immoral, they lack empathy, not religion. How does that ring?
1: One of the things that we try and teach our children in our Sunday Ethical Education for Kids program is how to be more empathetic, how to activate their moral emotions so that they feel what other people who are different to them feel. So we certainly believe as humanists that empathy is an important part of becoming a more moral human being. I had an opportunity to talk to Doris Kearns Goodwin,
0: uh, the political presidential historian recently. And she said, of all the great presidents, the greatest presidents had one quality in common, and that was empathy, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. Another call. Barbara in St. Louis, uh, thanks for waiting. You're on the air.
4: Hi, this is Barb. Um, I have a couple of thoughts. One is I read years ago that the more the world becomes chaotic, psychologically, people will tend to float towards religions that are uh, very dogmatic. By contrast, I was grow- I grew up Catholic, which was extremely dogmatic and, in my opinion, overloaded with dogma and tradition and everything else that eventually became the focus of the religion rather than the point of the religion. The spirit of the religion was to serve others. So in terms of the drift to humani- uh, to humanism, I think it's lost its way. Christian religions have lost their way, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Barbara,
0: thanks. Do you want to respond to that, Lee?
2: Well, I, I think what Barb has to say there does tell us a lot about the way in which this Notion of being spiritual in the world but not religious um, takes hold. There is so much of an association uh, of organized religion with um, or institutional religion with too much dogma, too much structure, and so what appeals then is this notion that there are these spiritual possibilities out there, whether they come in these ethical humanistic um, forms or whether they come in other. Um, practices around meditation or um, what have you. So that, that that distinction is really become very prominent in American religious life to kind of push for a, a distinction between dogmatic institutional religion and the spiritual um, interior, more open possibilities. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that's become a really critical part um, of defining this, this demographic
0: our time is beginning to wind down but james i i was wanted to ask you about your own journey i'm making a certain assumptions here that you were brought up in the church,
1: and at some point you left it. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but was it like that? That actually wasn't the case for me. So your listeners might be able to tell that I'm not from the United States. I'm from London, England. And in the United Kingdom, it's much more common to be brought up without any particular religious faith. And I grew up in a non-religious household, but I was around religion because I went to a very old Christian school that was founded initially on the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral, although it doesn't still inhabit those grounds and so I had many religious friends and I was very interested in religion from a young age and When I got to university, I decided I was going to do a big exploration and read the Bible cover to cover and the Quran, and the Bhagavad Gita and other religious texts to see what I believe for myself. And when I did that, I also came across what's called the Humanist Manifesto. And these are documents written by really smart people. There's a number of different ones laying out what they believed about life and the thing that struck me and this gets to Bob's point about dogmatism about the humanist manifestos is that they all begin with a disclaimer that says this is not a series of dogmas which people must believe in fact we expect them to be superseded in the future by better ideas as humanity learns more and thinks more about these questions and I had never read a disclaimer like that in any of the religious texts that I had been exploring and that really spoke to me the idea that we can learn and grow that much of what we believe now is probably wrong and that we have to leave room for us to develop spiritually and religiously. And that's the moment when I became a humanist. Mm-hmm.
0: Lee, I, I suspect, and our time is, is just about up, that there are a number of people listening to this program today who are shaking their heads and saying, "What? what's with these guys? <laughs> you know, what, what would you say to them? I mean, pe- people take their religion very, very seriously, obviously.
2: Right. Well, certainly when we're talking about The religiously disaffiliated. We're still talking about um, only 25 to 30 percent of the American population. It may have grown, but it's still not the majority. So the folks out there listening or shaking their heads, who are you know in the majority, who take the religion very seriously, who pray regularly, um, who very clearly believe in God. you know they can take great comfort in the fact that this conversation has been about still it's a growing group of people but it's still only 25 or 30% um but it is a group that needs to be reckoned with even if you're shaking your head about them
0: right and do you want to leave us with a final thought uh, James
1: my only final thought is that if you have questions about the ethical society of St Louis or humanism in general you can come to the ethical society on Thursday, the 31st of January. That's tomorrow as we're live at 7 p.m. And there is a public event where you can ask any questions you have, and we promise to answer them in a non judgmental way.
0: The title of that event is Church Without God What is an Ethical Society? 7 o'clock at the Ethical Society on Clayton Road. I want to thank you both, gentlemen, James Croft, for being with us. Thank you so much. And uh, he's with the Ethical Society, if you hadn't picked that up at this point. And Lee Schmidt of Washington University. Thank you so much for being with us. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.